intertwined in the six chapters of the Ephesian letter, we find some of the greatest prayers in all of Scripture. I have been told that the shortest distance between two people is prayer. Certainly, you realize that when we pray, it brings us closer to God, but also when we pray, it brings us closer one to the other. I must confess to you that I believe that one of the most frequent lies in the church is something like this. Hey, brother, I'm praying for you. (laughs) Sister, I'm praying for you. I think we have good intentions, but our follow-through leaves quite a bit to be desired. But when we pray for each other, what do we pray for? For most of us, our intercessory prayers are made up of talking about surgeries and situations. Lord, heal his cancer. Lord, help her recover from heart disease. Mend that marriage. Retrieve that prodigal son. Give her the job of her dreams. Nothing wrong with any of those prayers. But have you ever stopped to wonder, how does the Bible teach the church to pray for one another? Have you ever thought about that? What does the scripture say about how we as siblings in Christ ought to pray one for the other? It is with that in mind that I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Today we continue our sermon series entitled, It's by Grace, a study in the Ephesian letter. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Ephesians chapter 1. Let me begin at verse 15. I'll read through verse 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order for you to know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. To God be the glory. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. The apostle begins our passage with these words. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you and remembering you in my prayers. That three-word phrase, for this reason, begs the question, what is this reason? The answer to that is found in the preceding passage. The reason that Paul is talking about is this understanding that the Ephesian believers had that God cares for them. 
We talked about this in detail last Sunday, that you and I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God cares for us. How do we know? Because God the Father has chosen us. God the Son has redeemed us. And God the Holy Spirit has guaranteed our salvation. The Ephesian believers understood this reality. They knew God cares for us. And the reason he cares for us is because he has chosen us. He has redeemed us. He has sealed our salvation. So Paul says, for this reason, and because I heard that you love Jesus and you love the church, that I've heard about your faith I've heard about your love for the saints for this reason, this theological truth that God cares for us and because what you know has been demonstrated by what you show, that you love Jesus and you love the church. Paul says, for these reasons, I can't stop praying for you. I can't stop praying for you and when I pray for you, I am thanking God for you. One of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter was to simply say thank you for being real and genuine and authentic in your faith. Thank you. Thank you for loving Jesus. Thank you for loving the church. Paul writes this letter as if he wants to sit down one-on-one and just say to every believer, thanks. Thanks for keeping it real. Thanks for being genuine. Thank you for authentically walking before the Lord. Thank you for being a godly guy and a godly gal. The same reason why Paul writes this letter, I want to say to you today, thank you for your faithfulness. I wish I had the time to sit down with each and every one of you this morning. I wish we could just sit down one-on-one. I could lock eyes with you, look you in your eyes, and say with all sincerity, I thank you that you love Jesus and you love this church. Thank you for your walk before the Lord. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your transparency. Thank you that you are real and faithful before God. The reason Paul writes this letter is simply to say thank you. He says, I can't stop praying for you. And when I pray, I remember you often and I thank God for you. So Paul says in verse 17, I keep asking that you may know him better. What a great prayer. I don't know what you pray for when you pray for each other, but can I suggest that this is a phenomenal suggestion? It's a phenomenal prayer. I keep asking that you may know him better. Now, in verse 17, in the midst of all that, he, he describes to whom he prays, and that's the Trinitarian God. So he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I keep asking. It's a, it's a present continuous action because you and I know that prayer is a present continuous action. It's not just that you pray once and it's a one and done event. No, you continue to pray. Paul will say to the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. So here in Ephesians, he says, I keep asking. I keep praying. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the Trinitarian God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. When you stop and think about it, Ephesians chapter 1 is permeated and punctuated with prayer and praise to the Trinitarian God. 
Everything is about God. And God is the Father who has chosen us, the Son who has redeemed us, the Spirit who has sealed our salvation. And here, he keeps on asking. And who's he talking to? He's talking to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And what's he asking for? That you may know him better. I keep asking that you may know him better. Since we are disciples of Christ, and a disciple is a lifelong believing learner of Jesus, don't you think this would be a great prayer for us to pray for each other? I pray that my brother or my sister may know you better. I may not know everything that's going on in the life of Kyle or Bob or James, but I can pray, Lord, may these brothers know you better. I may not know every experience of Lisa or Debbie or Diane, but I certainly can pray, Lord, can you help my sisters today to know you better? Paul says that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. And since that is true, and the answer is Jesus, it would seem to me that the solution to life is to know him better. So let me ask you, What does it mean to know Jesus better? What does it look like to know Jesus better? If he keeps on praying this, which he does, I keep asking that you may know him better. What does it look like in tangible ways to know Jesus better? Paul offers three practical petitions to the Lord. He says, I want you to know the hope to which God has called you. I want you to know the inheritance which is yours in Christ. And I want you to know the power that is working for us. In other words, what Paul is saying to the church at Ephesus and to the church at Pelham and to every Christian and believer who's ever existed, he's saying, I want you to be hip with Jesus. I want you to know hope. I want you to know the inheritance. I want you to know the power. I want you to be hip with Jesus. I keep asking that they may know you better. What does that look like? It looks like that we know the hope to which God has called us and we know the inheritance which is ours in Christ and we know the power that raised Jesus from the dead. So Paul begins and he says, I I want your eyes of your heart to be enlightened, to be opened. Now, we speak in that language. It's almost uh, religious jargon and it's, it's church vernacular. We understand the eyes of our heart. But if you stop and think about that, that's pretty strange language, isn't it? I mean, just be intellectually honest just for a second. You and I both know that hearts don't have eyes. Yet here, clearly, Paul says, I, I want you to open the eyes of their heart. When we think of heart, we think of love and romance, flowers and Cupid. But in The days of the Bible, the heart was not the seat of emotion, it was the seat of intellect. It was out of the heart that ideas were formed, it was out of the heart that identity was found. So that in the scripture it will say out of the heart is speech. The psalmist will say, search my heart, O God, know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. So from Paul's understanding, from the Ephesian understanding, from the biblical understanding, when he's saying, God, I want you to open the eyes of their heart, what he's saying is, I want you to give them understanding. I keep asking that they may know you better. 
I keep asking that you would open up their eyes. I keep asking that you would give them deeper uh, experiences and greater understanding of who you are. I want them to know you better. What does that mean? What does it look like to know Jesus better? First, it means that you know the hope to which God has called you. You know the hope to which God has called you. In our culture, um, hope really is a possibility that is highly unlikely. That's how we use the word hope. It's a possibility, but it's highly unlikely. We say, I hope to get a good report from the doctor. I hope to get a good grade on the English exam. I hope that our children brush their teeth before they came to church today. It's a possibility, but it's highly unlikely, right? That's how we speak of hope. Yet in the Bible, hope is not a possibility. Hope is a certainty. It is an absolute blessed assurance. And Paul says, if you want to know Jesus better, I'm praying that you will know him better. And what I mean by that, Paul says, is I want you to know the hope that is yours in Christ. I want you to know the hope to which God has called you. I want you to know the blessed assurance. I want you to know the confidence. I want you to know the steadfast assurance, the hope that God has called you. You remember that last week we uh, talked about how God has called us, how God has sovereignly selected us. In the opening lines of Ephesians chapter 1, it's the apostle who talks about this doctrine of election. It's a beautiful doctrine, wonderful uh, set of beliefs that we need to hold on to uh, dearly because the purpose of election is not to give anyone a sense of superiority, but is to give a sense of security that everything about our walk with Christ, our salvation, the Lord, is rooted and established in God. For when did God choose you? Paul answers that question for us. It wasn't uh, the first time you obeyed your parents. It wasn't that first time you tried to help somebody. It, it wasn't uh, that time that you uh, gained enough strength to invite a complete stranger to church. It's not that God saw your activity and said, boy, I'm going to choose you based on that. No, before the very foundation of the world, God chose us. This predates Genesis 1.1. Before the foundation of the world, God sovereignly selected you. That is to give you a great deal of security in God. Now, why did he choose you? Once again, Paul answers that in chapter 1. In the previous passage, he says that, that God has chosen us to be holy and blameless. He didn't choose you because you are holy and blameless. He chose you, he chose me to be holy and blameless. On what basis is this choosing? Is it because of some intrinsic value or because we're clever or because we have some characteristic or something we can offer? No, in love, he predestined us. And he adopted us as his sons and daughters because of his good pleasure and his will. It's all wrapped up in the Lord. Now, you have to willfully respond unto him. You have to voluntarily choose Christ. But I want you to know that God's been thinking about you a lot longer than you've been thinking about the Lord. Once again, this is given to us so that we may have the hope to which God has called us. For we know that whatever goes on in our life, God's got it. 
if he chose you before the very foundation of the world, then whatever is happening in this moment on this day, don't you think that he is capable to handle it? He's got you. The whole doctrine of election is to give us a great deal of security in God and his ability. Keep in mind, um, where was Paul when he wrote the Ephesian letter? He was in jail. He was in a Roman jail. It had been about five to seven years since he had seen the Ephesians. By the Spirit of God, he had planted the church there in Ephesus. And then the Spirit of the Lord instructed him to go elsewhere. And so there was a gap of about five to seven years between uh, him leaving Ephesus and writing this letter. What happened during those five to seven years? Well, uh, uh, Paul experienced trials and difficulties, tragedy. Uh, He was booted out of just about every city he went into. Uh, He was incarcerated for two of those years in Caesarea. He was uh, shipwrecked. He was snake-bitten. He was whipped several times, uh, 40 lashes minus one. And most recently, he finds himself in a Roman jail. Now, why? Why is he imprisoned? Well, it's not because he's a murderer. It's not because of tax evasion. It's not because he's a money launderer. He's in jail because he proclaims the gospel. He's in jail because he's a preacher. He's in jail because he is saying, thus saith the Lord. He's communicating the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ that though you are dead in your sins, God can make you alive in Christ Jesus. He speaks the same gospel to Jew and Gentile. In other words, anybody and everybody. It really doesn't matter. Anybody he meets, he's going to talk about the gospel. And that proclamation of the gospel lands him in jail. And if there's ever anyone who you can make the argument, had the right to say, Lord, do you know what you're doing? It would have to be the apostle, right? Lord, I've given everything up for you. I am following you. I've given up my career. I've given up everything to pursue you and to go where you want me to go. And it seems that all I'm met with is suffering, sickness, and sadness. Lord, do you know what you're doing? Yet all the while in all of his writings, you don't get any indication that somehow he wavers in the hope. No, he has an unswerving hope. He clings to that hope. That hope is all that he has. And he is communicating to the Ephesian believers, listen, I want you to know Christ better. What does it mean to know Christ better? It means that you have the hope to which God has called you. If he has sovereignly selected you, he can hold you every step, every season, every day of this life and even in the life to come. God has got it. So that Edward Mote is exactly right when he wrote, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Paul says, I keep asking that you may know him better. I keep asking that you may know him better. I keep asking that you may know him better. What does that mean? Well, first it means that you may know the hope to which God has called you. Secondly, Paul says, I I want you to know the inheritance 
that is ours in Christ. How will you know the inheritance that is ours in Christ? He describes it as glorious riches. He's not proclaiming a health and wealth gospel. He's not saying that if you have faith, then God's going to give you health and God's going to give you wealth. But he says, I want you to know Christ better. And what that means is I want you to know the, inher- <coughs> the inheritance, excuse me, that is ours in Jesus Christ. I want you to know the inheritance that is ours in Christ. Later, Paul's going to write, you who are far away from God have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Have you ever stopped to think about what you've inherited from Jesus? You ever stop to think about what you get from big brother Jesus? Because of the accomplished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you and I can have forgiveness of all sin for all time. Every sin you've ever committed, every sin you will ever commit is under the righteous blood of Christ. You've inherited forgiveness of sin. You've also inherited right standing before God, being declared innocent in his sight, even though you and I both know we are guilty as charged. You have inherited personal access to God that can never be denied. You have the opportunity at any moment, any day, to stand before the Lord. You're always standing before him, declared innocent because of the work of Christ. You inherit from Jesus the peace that passes all understanding. You can't understand it. You can't describe it. You can't explain it. You just know you got it. It's peace that passes all understanding. In Jesus, you have inherited joy, joy that the world cannot take away, joy that circumstances cannot diminish, a joy that cannot be thwarted. You have experienced a joy from God. You've you've inherited the promise of answered prayers. You can go to God and pray, and you know that God hears your prayers, and he will answer your prayers. You have the inheritance of the glorious riches of Christ in you. Now, some of y'all are just looking at me um, just like uh, uh, I told you something trivial or something insignificant. I'm telling you some earth-shattering stuff. I mean, when you realize all the inheritance that you have because of Jesus Christ, Paul says you want to know him better, focus on the inheritance that you've received in Christ. So that the person that's most responsible for your walk with the Lord is the person that's seated in between the person on your right and on your left. That's you. You can be as close to God as you want to be. You can think about Jesus as much as you want to think about him. You can worship him as passionately as you want to worship him. You can serve him as wholeheartedly as you want to serve him. You can think about him as deeply as you want to think about him. 
And since we are disciples and a disciple is a lifelong believing learner of Christ, what are you learning? What are you thinking about when it comes to your inheritance in Christ? Are, are you still quoting the same verses you quoted five years ago? Are you um, still knowing Jesus at the same level that you knew him 10, 15, 20 years ago? If, if you are, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not bad. It's just not enough. Because Jesus wants us to so focus on him and focus on his inheritance that his understanding in our life becomes deeper and broader and stronger than ever we thought possible. So Paul says, I want you to know him better. What does that mean? It means I want you to know the inheritance that is ours in Christ. So that Paul tells the church, focus on him. I think that most of us, if not all of us, we're like a car out of alignment. I mean, we're just kind of trucking down life and, and sometimes we just veer off the straight and narrow. Um, we, we have a pull towards something that's not of the Lord. And, and you know, when your car's out of alignment, sometimes it's subtle. Well, sometimes it's severe. You let go of the wheel, you know, you gotta pull it back over. Regardless of whether it's subtle or severe, it's always significant. And most of us, we have a pull. We, we veer. We, we go through life and, and we veer towards bitterness. We just have a bent towards bitterness. It doesn't take much for us to get bitter. It doesn't take much for us to get frustrated. It doesn't take much for us to get angry. Sometimes we... We just veer towards selfishness or materialism or lust. We, we, we veer towards those things that are not of God. And we, we sometimes do that subtly. Sometimes we do it severely. Always when we do it, it is significant. And what is Paul saying to the church? He's saying, I want you to know him better. I want you to know Christ better. What does that mean? That means that you focus on the inheritance that is yours in Jesus Christ. You may be sitting there thinking right now, now, preacher, are you trying to tell me I got to think about Jesus all the time? I don't even think that's possible. I don't think it's possible to think about Jesus all the time. I mean, I would become a person that was so heavily minded, no earthly good. I mean, are you trying to tell me that, that I just have the capacity to focus my thoughts? And I'm telling you exactly, you have the capacity to focus your thoughts. Absolutely, I'm saying that you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you have the capacity to focus on the inheritance that is yours in Jesus Christ. So that when something that's not godly, something that's not of the Lord, flies across the screen of your mind, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can replace that with focusing on the inheritance that is yours in Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is saying. To know him better, I keep asking that you may know him better. I keep asking that you grow in your faith. I keep asking that you know him better. What does it mean to know Christ better? What it means to know Christ better is to know the hope of which God has called us. To know the inheritance that is ours in Jesus Christ. But then third, he says, I want you to know the power that is working for us. I want you to know the power that is working for us. This is the theme that he develops uh, most deeply in the passage. 
Paul uses four words for power. I want you to know the power that is working for us. He uses four words. The first word is um, the word from which we get the English derivative dynamite, explosive power. The second word that's translated uh, power, uh, we get the English word energy. The third word is an understanding uh, that it is mighty. And that word mighty carries the connotation that it is um, endowed power, power from another source. And then the fourth word is strength, which is another synonym for power. And the word strength means dominion, rule, authority. So Paul says you put all these together, this is the power that's available for those who believe. This is the power which God exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the heavenly realms. Did did you catch what Paul just said? The apostle just said, the same power which God exerted in Christ, bringing a dead man back to life again and seating him at the right hand of the heavenly realms, that same power is available to you. Oh, y'all didn't get it. This same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father is available for you, my sister, and you, my brother, for all those who are in Christ. I can't think of a greater power than the ability to raise the dead back to life again. This, This is a type of power that people seek, that countries strive to attain, that literally people would kill for. Nation would rise up against nation if one nation had the power to raise the dead to life. Innate within us is a longing for life. We want to live. Even pagans want to live. We want to live as young as we possibly can. So the older we get, the more we fight the aging process, don't we? The evidence that we fight the aging process gives uh, the reality that that we, we want to be young, we want to be vivacious, we want to be alive. So there are all types of surgeries and ointments and, and uh, all type of cosmetics. And we do all of this so that we can be as young as long as possible because we want to live. And Paul says, the power that God exerted upon Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the heavenlies is working for you. It's not working against you. It's working for you. So if that's true, and God's power that raised Christ from the dead is working for me, then do you think that I should think that God can handle all my problems? The answer is yes. Do you think that I should think that God can handle all my problems? Yes. There is no problem. There is no predicament. There is no prognosis. There is no sickness, no setback. There is no situation that is outside of the jurisdiction of the Lord that is beyond his capacity and his power because he has all power. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that's working for us. 
Oh, Paul says, I keep asking that you will know him better. I keep asking that you may know him better. What does that mean? It means to be hip with Jesus, to know the hope that God has called us, to know the inheritance that is ours in Christ, to know the power that is working for us. Paul elaborates on this. He says, because of this power, Jesus is not just above, but he is far above all rule and authority, all power and dominion, every name, every title, in this age and the age to come. Jesus is not just above us. He is far above us. Now keep in mind that Paul is writing to the Ephesian believers, and in Ephesus, idolatry was rampant. Not only did they worship Artemis, build an ornate temple in her honor, dedicate one month of the year to this pagan deity, and hold Olympic-style games in her honor on a regular basis. But in addition to all of that, there were at least 50 other gods and goddesses that were identified and worshipped in the city of Ephesus. All of the economy, the vast majority of the economy was built in Ephesus around this idolatry. People would come from near and far. They would tour the temples. They would buy all the, buy all the little shrines and the trinkets. And they would have all the things that, um, that could be offered there in Ephesus. Undoubtedly, some of the early believers in Ephesus, they still had their household idols. They still had their pagan trinkets. They still had their magical incantations. They would hold on to them just in case Jesus wasn't enough. Just in case Jesus wasn't legit. Just in case Jesus wasn't enough. In Ephesus, allegiance to a deity was never required so that people routinely worshipped more than one deity on a regular basis. It didn't matter how many the more the merrier. Um, it didn't matter how you did it, just so you worshiped as many as possible. And Jesus claims he must be the only God in your life. So people would hold on to their trinkets, hold on to their shrines, hold on to their little statues, just in case Jesus wasn't enough. So Paul says, I write this letter to show you the preeminence of Christ. He is so high that he is far above us. He is so elevated that everything is under his feet. Everything under his feet. What that means is, is that everything is under his authority so that he can stand up and lord over it. Everything under the feet of Jesus. So what he wants to tell the Ephesians, he wants to tell you and me. Jesus has got it. Everything is under his feet. Every rule, every authority under the feet of Jesus. Every president, every politician under the feet of Jesus. Every king, every queen under the feet of Jesus. Every person on planet earth under the feet of Jesus. Every country, every people group, every nation under the feet of Jesus. 
every problem, every situation, every scenario under the feet of Jesus. Every proton, every neutron, every electron under the feet of Jesus. Every sickness, every sadness, every setback under the feet of Jesus. Everything that keeps you up at night under the feet of Jesus. Every difficulty that gives you heartburn and a chest pain under the feet of Jesus. Cancer under the feet of Jesus. Heart disease under the feet of Jesus. A problematic teenager under the feet of Jesus. Your marriage under the feet of Jesus. Your job under the feet of Jesus. Your problematic co-worker under the feet of Jesus. Your deadbeat boss under the feet of Jesus. All your problems in your life under your feet of Jesus. The prodigal is in a far country under the feet of Jesus. Every church house, every outhouse, every white house under the feet of Jesus. Everything that's high and low, everything that's east and west, everything under the feet of Jesus. Paul says, I want you to know him better. I keep asking that you know him better. What does that mean, Paul? What what does it mean to know Jesus better? Well, in practical ways. I want you to know the hope to which God has called you. Hold unswervingly to it. I want you to know the inheritance that is yours in Jesus Christ. Focus on it. Don't focus on your problems. I want you to know the power. The power that raised Jesus from the dead, which God exerted on Christ, is working for you. This is true, my friends. So what Paul prayed for the church, I pray for you today. And you pray one for the other. I keep asking. I keep asking. I keep asking that you may know him better. Maybe that means you just need to know him for the first time. You're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That could mean that you need to come and pray for the person seated on your right, on your left, the person in front of you, behind you, maybe across the sanctuary, up in the balcony. Maybe you're praying for a child. Maybe you're praying for a family member. What are you praying for? I keep asking that you may know him better. Heavenly Father, that is our prayer. May we walk out of here knowing you better. Have your way in this invitation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.